from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special live edition of HPS Insights. My name is Brian DeAngelis. I'm a partner here at Hamilton Place Strategies and one of our frequent podcasters, along with my co-host, Matt McDonald, who's joining me today. Um, So we're particularly excited to host our first video episode in front of a live audience. Um, We have two very special guests today joining us from one of HPS's new partners, Ballast Research. We have Mike Gottlieb, president of Ballast Research, and Michael Griffin, Ballast's director of research. Um, Mike and Michael are here to discuss the release of their annual Washington Insights report. But first, I just want to set the stage a little bit and let me cover a few logistical points for those of you in the audience. Um, By way of background, last year, HPS and Ballast Research, along with a third firm, Alva, a stakeholder intelligence platform, joined forces so we could offer our clients a comprehensive solution to stakeholder management. By bringing together all of this platform with Ballast Direct Research and insights into policymakers with HPS's data-driven approach to public affairs, we are now able to provide corporate leaders with the solutions they need to manage a increasingly complex set of challenges they they face from stakeholders. Um, The findings from this year's Washington Insights Review will provide a lot more context on those challenges and what corporate leaders and policymakers are facing. I'm sure many of you tuning in um, will have questions from Mike and Michael. So here's how we'll run this. I'm going to turn things over to Mike in a minute here to walk us through um, the background around this report and the work that Ballast does. I'll then ask Michael Griffin um, to jump in and talk a little bit about this year's findings in particular and Matt and I will, will join in the discussion throughout. What I'll ask all of you watching uh, from, from home and our virtual audience to do is if you have a question, uh, please type them into the question and answers tab on your screen. I'll be monitoring that with our team and we'll try to get as many as we can in the next 30 minutes or so. Um, so with that, Mike, Michael, Matt, thanks for joining me. Um, Mike, let me kick things off by turning it over to you. Um, Can you give us a brief overview of of what the Washington Insights Review is and and the policymaker research that you all are doing at at Ballast that informs this report each year? Yeah, I'd I'd be delighted. And thank you, Brian and Matt, for including us and for your partnership. So Ballast Research has a, a pretty focused mission, and that is to improve policy conversations in Washington and states and, and local jurisdictions. And our hypothesis is that there's an enormous amount of information to be shared between and among social sector, public sector, private sector advocates, but that it is not always the most efficient. Uh, and we see a lot of meetings and communication strategies, public affairs uh, engagements that are not providing specifically to policymakers, the kind of data research and analysis that they need to inform their productive policymaking. And so what we do every year is rather simple. We engage policymakers at the local, state, and federal level every year, all year, at the White House, at on the Hill, senior staff on the Hill at the agencies, also governor's offices, state legislators, um, to try to understand from them what they need 
from the numerable advocates that are engaging them? What kind of one-pagers are useful? What kind of data are you looking for? What do you need from this or that sector to really help drive and improve your public policymaking? And at the end of each year, we compile that research, we digest it, and we try to summarize what we think is most useful in a summary assessment of what policymakers are looking for. And that is the substance behind the report that we're talking about today. That's great. That's great. Michael Griffin, why don't I ask you now if you can jump in and can we kick off this discussion with maybe an overview of of your findings this year, anything you all want to highlight for the audience? Sure, happy to. And and thanks again, Brian and and Matt, for for having us today. Um, This year's research really centers on the idea of uh, corporate citizenship and how what it means to be a good uh, corporate citizenship is, is changing. Uh, and, you know, of course, our research looks at this primarily through the lens of one key stakeholder audience, uh, government policymakers, and how companies are engaging specifically in D.C. Uh, the reason why we're looking at it this year right now is because COVID has really accelerated the extent to which companies are engaging on a broader set of political and social issues uh, under pressure from customers, employees, other stakeholders as well. So issues like Black Lives Matter, voting rights, um, climate, just to name you know, a few that, are, that have been in, uh, prominently in the news in the past year and a half or so. You know, for a lot of uh, companies, engaging on these issues is, is new. Um, for many C-suite leaders, effectively engaging on these broader issues is not something they necessarily all have experience with, not something they've built a skill set around um, in their careers. And you know, so perhaps unsurprisingly, we, you know, we see varying levels of effectiveness in terms of how companies tackle um, these issues. And we certainly heard that uh, this past year in our conversations with policymakers uh, in the sense that many told us that they see improvement uh, in terms of how companies can engage effectively uh, on these issues uh, in Washington. Um, There were certainly notable differences uh, uh, across parties in terms of how they perceived uh, corporate citizenship more generally and, and company engagement. But what was interesting is that there were a few common themes that cut across uh, both sides of the aisle in terms of what we heard from policymakers, which is what they think strong corporate citizenship looks like, especially looking forward uh, in a post-pandemic world. Just to summarize some of the key um, findings in terms of what policymakers want to see, three key areas. The, The first is they want intentional, not reactionary engagement. So, you know, we heard that policymakers very much welcome engagement on issues, especially those that are you know, central core to the business, um, as opposed to what some uh, called or viewed as for knee-jerk reactions to the issue of the moment, um, reacting to the news cycle. Uh, second, uh, we heard that policymakers want to hear and see realistic commitments, as well as organizations are taking responsibility for their impact. Uh, you know, we heard a lot of skepticism um, about unrealistic promises, especially if, the, if, if they're not paired with some short-term accountability for results. And, you know, the third thing we, we heard and found uh, pretty consistent across our, our research across the past you know, more than eight years is they want to see the local impact. Um, uh, policymakers, again, across both, both sides of the aisle, want to see local impact from advocates. How is this going to impact my constituents and however that's defined? Uh, they appreciate and want to see data. Um, they want to hear compelling narratives about local impact. Let, let me ask you a question there, Michael. Um, my my gut tells me that that last piece has maybe uh, changed a bit over the years. So I'm I'm curious 
how much the pressures of, of COVID-19 and, you know, this hitting everyone very in a very personal way, whether it's through school, through their jobs, through just being stuck at home for those first few months have led to this kind of new standard of corporate citizenship and, and led policymakers to want to see more of that local impact. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think when we talk about what's changing, I would say the focus on local impact has been pretty consistent. That's something we hear every every year. I, I think what's really changed, perhaps, uh, is um, the types of issues that we're seeing the private sector in, engage on. And I think if you ask, well, what's what's underneath that? What's driving that? Um, especially as it relates to COVID, um, you know, I, I think to be clear, it it's not necessarily being driven, obviously, from, from the policymaker perspective. It's really being driven by customers uh, and by employee expectations. Um, and you know, what we've seen is that expectations of customers and employees uh, during COVID uh, have shifted. Um, you know, and and in, in doing this research, uh, some really interesting data around how. A majority of employees now, um, 54%, say that CEOs should speak out on you know, controversial issues, whether it's social or political. Same for consumers. A majority now uh, say that, C- that the brands uh, should engage on uh, at least one social issue that's um, not directly impacting its business. Um, and I think you know, true for general public as well. Uh, a vast majority, 80% plus Americans expecting corporate leaders to speak out on social issues, and it's, it's true across um, Democrats, Republicans, Independents. More, more than two thirds saying this, and so you know, obviously, a lot of these trends predated uh, COVID. But I think what we're seeing is that really accelerated during the pandemic, and you know, and as a result, the companies are feeling more pressure um, to engage on these broader issues. Can I can I ask on that on that question? It's a it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, scenario where, in theory, like people who disagree on the particulars of an issue both want. A CEO to speak out on the issue. Does everyone think that the CEO will agree with them? Is that the underlying assumption of like where where this stuff hashes out? Because for the CEOs, it, it's a question of okay, everyone wants you to speak out. Like, what do you say? Right. Right. And, yeah. And that's I think here that's the challenge, right? Yeah. Absolutely. That, and that that that's what makes this this difficult. And I think you know, and I think what we heard is that again, variety of approaches in terms of how companies are, have been weighing in, and also kind of varying levels of effectiveness in terms of how they've been, how they've been doing it. It is interesting. It does, it does seem to, um, to your earlier point, it does seem to, some of these things seem like, feel like they require a black belt in politics, not like a yellow belt. And I feel like a lot of companies are struggling with, I, I, that's not, you know, most CEOs weren't uh, promoted to that role through their kind of facility with, uh, public political commentary, but it does have a higher stakes uh, vibe to it these days. Matt, I think we're seeing that on, on the client side, just as, as as Michael has described, we're seeing policymakers demand, invoke, invite the participation of higher level corporate senior leadership on issues that you're quite right. They certainly don't have a black belt in uh, or, or really any primary interest in. They're trying to run a company. They're trying to focus on their business. Um, and so their response has been, what do I need to manage this? Who do I need in the room? And as we look at the constellation of senior executives who are now participating in enterprise level conversations, we're seeing government affairs and government relations. If they had not been in those conversations previously, more likely to be central to those conversations or 
I'll be very candid, oftentimes excluded to the great risk of the company. And we've seen a lot of company lessons learned in the last year where GR or external affairs was not included in certain decisions that directly impact that stakeholdership. So it's really interesting to see not only how policymakers are driving um, the um, participation of senior leaders, but how those senior leaders are reacting in some rather substantial structural ways and how they manage that stakeholdership. Mike, can I ask you to um, expand on that a little bit, thinking about the last year? We saw a, a number of moments where senior leaders are expected to weigh in on some very political issues, voting rights, others, um, at the same time where you know that may harm them with some of their Republican um, targets, but at the same time, they're out there advocating for some of the tax reform issues and, and infrastructure that Biden was pushing. So it it strikes me, I think we all see it every day, that a corporate leader can be pulled in two very different directions pretty aggressively. How are you seeing folks manage that or how do policymakers understand that? Yeah, so let me back up a little bit. We've been studying you know, hundreds, if not thousands of senior policymakers for the last decade. And one of the things that we look at is in this year, what are your priorities, right? That's what we're trying to convey. Hey, folks, right now it's COVID. So everybody's focused on COVID. If your policy priority is not COVID, you're probably not going to get the meeting. We need to be able to communicate what the main policy priorities are of our public sector colleagues so that they can get the benefit of targeted, tailored information to help them do their to their work. The other thing that we look at is year over year, tactically, strategically, substantively, what's most impactful to policymakers. And one of the things that comes through year after year across both sides of the aisle is meaningful investment in communities, in stakeholders. So Look, when we look at what are the best levers to advocate in Washington or in any jurisdiction, it's your lobbyists, your lobbying team, right? That's that's your frontline staff. That's your greatest asset. But what distinguishes you most from the 300 other offices in Washington that are also advocating with large lobbying teams and really good, exceptional lobbying strength? It's research and data. It's also investment in communities. And what policymakers on both sides of the aisle are looking for is what Michael alluded to earlier. It's got to be intentional. It's got to be realistic. It's got to be not, you know, um, too reactive. But what we're looking for is, number one, is it local? Is it relevant to my jurisdiction? If you are funding, you know, uh, a PPE in some other state and really doing great work for that state, but it's not my state. I don't, you know, that's great for you, but I don't really care. Is it in my jurisdiction? So is it local? That's always useful. And second, is it somehow authentic to who you are as a business and a policy player in Washington? So for instance, if you are a beverage company, investment in water sustainability gets you more credit, credibility, interest, engagement than investment in, I don't know, cancer research or, um, or, or PPE, right? Because you're a beverage company. If you're a manufacturing company, your management of the supply chain and your support for PPE is actually rather more authentic to who you are. If you are a financial services company, maybe financial literacy in the communities that your policymaker colleagues uh, serve is useful. So this whole idea of corporate social responsibility investment is actually has um, bipartisan strength, attachment, credibility, where it begins to divide parties is where it becomes either political or purely political, or can be perceived to be purely political. Mm -hmm. And and I, I will caution here, 
I'm only talking about policymakers, right? So the C-suite and corporate stakeholders have to manage employees and consumers and investors and activists and this burgeoning democracy of stakeholders. Well, I'm only talking about policymakers. So you may be hearing from your employees, listen, Madam President, you've got to opine on this issue because it's important to us as your employees. Policymakers, you know, except for, you know, some signaling are, are, are not giving you credit for engaging or really sticking your head out on those social issues. And they're certainly not doing so in a bipartisan way. So one of the things that we're advising to our clients based on what policymakers are telling us is stick to what you know, stick to your strengths. If we are talking about energy transition and you are an oil and gas company, come in with your research, your data, your perspective, your expertise. But it is not necessarily not to signal out an oil, not to single out an oil and gas company, but it's not clear to us why you would have a particular purchase on voting rights uh, or on um, uh, uh, you know, police reform or any number of issues on which you may opine, but don't necessarily inure to your credibility as a policy advocate. So that's the, the needle that we're, we're trying to help folks through it. Mike, what's the what's uh, I, I guess what is the sense among policymakers of how many companies are threading this needle or doing this well versus not doing this well? Is there a is there a view on that? Yeah, so there's good news and there's bad news. Um, the bad news is no one's doing it really well. The good news is it creates an opportunity to stand out right quick, right? So in in this highly saturated environment in this very partisan, very noisy, and I will say more and more hard, uh, challenging, noisy, partisan environment. It's just going to get worse. Um, The opportunities to stand out are greater than ever before. So when we do study companies who get this right, they can do so in a short amount of time and stand out at least from their sector, if not from cross-sector advocates in Washington. So in answer to your question, it is actually not difficult to get policymakers to name a particular company, less um, common a particular industry, but a particular company that is getting this right and engaging above the fold, so to speak, with long-term credibility, uh, meaningfully investing in communities. Now, if you get them to to name three or four, that's going to be tough. But again, it creates this, this opportunity. And again, if I may, it's at relatively low cost to the company. Most companies we study are investing heavily in social responsibility, philanthropy, communities. They are either not communicating that to policymakers because it's driven by marketing or corporate comms and and they aren't equipped or focused on senior policymakers in Washington, or it's not being communicated to those policymakers in a way that resonates with them that is relevant to them, that is in the language in any number of the DC publications that will capture their attention and help inform their policy, which is great opportunity. There's lots of opportunity here. One of the, I would say, questions that we get most frequently from clients or potential clients is advice on the decision-making process for this type of situation, being asked to weigh in on this. You know, there's, there's some things that we've worked with them on in terms of ensuring a range of backgrounds and perspectives in the room for that sort of thing, thinking about precedent setting. There's a bunch of other tools that we've kind of worked with clients on. Is there anything uh, top of mind that you guys would either recommend or see 
in clients to help navigate, I guess, the moment of the decision of, do we need to say something? How do we weigh in? It, it feels like I the things that you're talking about in terms of like setting yourself up for success and authenticity make a lot of sense. And I, I hear clients agree with that stuff, but then there's the moment when, you know, everything is under scrutiny and under the microscope, which feels like a very different moment for a lot of them. Well, look, I, I have a take on this. It, it'll sound a bit cheeky and it is, but you know, you ask, what is the decision-making uh, uh, advice? Have one, have a process of decision-making. That's goal number one, right? right? So like where we see folks get flat-footed or caught off guard is, um, what do we do about pack spend? I don't know. Well, someone's yelling at us to stop spending money on people they don't like. How do we respond to that? I have no idea. As compared with, thank you for the question. Here's how we as a company view political spend. These are our first principles. This is our framework. And here is the flow chart that we put a decision through. Like it or don't like it, but that's what it is. That will get you so much um I think leverage, that's the wrong word, but I think that gets you a lot of credibility. So there are two things I would say. Is, one, develop that. It doesn't have to be perfect, but develop that so you can communicate it and articulate it. And by the way, it's not coincidental. The reason folks don't have this decision-making framework is they haven't thought it through at a senior level. They don't really know, and they're not many of them aren't guided by first principles. So do that work. Uh, and I really like your point about having the right folks in the room. I'm a little biased here because we work in the government affairs community, but for goodness sake, have government affairs part of the conversation, even if he or she is overruled. It may well be that general counsel has an equity or corporate comms has an equity or investor relations has an equity that overrides GR's view on this, but at least be informed by the impact that any decision will have on this particular stakeholdership of policymakers. So that two years from now, when we have a challenge in that community, we will understand why it is and, and how to overcome it. But I think just, and there are there are trade associations that do this, I think, particularly well. There are models for a decision-making framework on how to either spend politically or engage on particular social issues, the very fact of which allows senior stakeholders to respond to communities and demonstrate you know, the, the, the process that drives these outcomes. I, I want to jump on that and something you said, Michael, about, about customers. And we give the same advice to a lot of clients of, you know, let it be authentic, let it be true to you. But, but we do have a question from the audience about what you guys are seeing. Maybe, Michael Griffin, this would be a good one to bring you back in. But what, what percentage of customers think corporate leaders should be speaking out on issues that don't affect their business? Yeah, no, uh, and that's that's a good question. Um, and it's certainly something we looked at right, in, 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 in the research. And, and I was talking about earlier in terms of what's really driving this. And, you know, what we see is it a lot of the change is being driven by expectations of customers um, as well as employees as well. And yeah, um, with a majority of the majority of customers, and they see if I can find a specific number, 53% um, tell us that brands have a responsibility to get involved in at least one social issue that doesn't directly impact um, their business. Um, but it's not just customers, right? It's also we see with employees as well in terms of their expectations on the types of issues that they expect their employer. So that relation, that employer-employee relationship has really changed a lot. Again, this is a long-term trend, but accelerated pretty dramatically in the last couple of years, seeing the same um, thing on the consumer side as as well. And I think that's what's driving a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the breadth 
of the issues that companies are engaging in DC on uh, in the past in the past couple of years. And Mike Gottlieb, I, I think I, you just answered this a minute ago, but but the advice we give to clients there that I I think you'd agree with is, you know, if you have that demand, right? If you're a corporate leader and and your customers are driving you to weigh in on an issue then have GR in the room and have comms in the room. And so when that can be communicated up to policymakers and those other stakeholders in the appropriate way. But correct me if I'm wrong on that. No, I think that's right. And I think it speaks to a broader strategy or, or strategic imperative, which is if you're a corporate leader, you now need more people in the room than you had before. And maybe you revise your corporate structure so you have folks who can represent those interests. And we're seeing some corporate restructuring so that message all GR, comms, investor relations, all uh, uh, ladders up to you know, a, a representative. But you have more um, a, a more diverse set of more powerful stakeholder interests that you must serve as a corporate leader now. Policymakers are among them. Uh, and I think what's most useful and what we are, are trying to provide corporate leaders is some mechanism, some framework, some dashboard, if you will, mm-hmm. of where these various interests are driving us and how best to respond to them both individually uh, and also as a group and how to make sense of it. Uh, the reason corporate leaders are in the place that they are is because of their decision-making ability and their leadership skills. And those decisions will be made based on that purview, but they've got to have the inputs. And where we see corporations get into trouble is by virtue of the fact that the room was, and forgive me, I'm just going to make some up, only GC and an external comms consultant, uh, some important stakeholder impacts were perhaps not well articulated. And the decision may have come out the same way, but there was less ability to plan for those stakeholder responses. So, so yes, I think it's a, a, a bigger tent, perhaps more cooks in the kitchen. That's going to create challenges as well. But it is reflective of this stronger, more diverse, perhaps more democratized set of stakeholder interests driving corporate decision-making. It's a good point on the... on. Uh... I like the point on, you know, the decision may not change, but you can make the decision more robust, right? A lot of the times you can, you get into situations where um, you'll have a better sense of what the trade-offs are. You know, if you think there's not a trade-off, you might be missing something. You can get into situations where, okay, there are a series of follow-on consequences or other statements that we're going to have to make in the future and contemplating those and having just a little bit more look around the corner, um, you know, that those are the types of things that a robust decision-making process will yield as opposed to kind of a like, well, I'm getting a lot of pressure and, you know, so-and-so sent me this article that they saw. I mean, that that's, you know, those are not the, not the place where you want to land for a real robust, durable uh, decision-making process on this type of stuff. It also speaks a little bit to where decisions historically have been centered or made in certain corporate structures and how that is changing. I think you all know better than I, the evolution of corporate communications, of marketing, of, of Marcom as, a, as an industry. I think we're now seeing an evolution of government affairs, external affairs, and the role and um, complexity of the division that is served by the company, given the policy environment that we're operating in. 
I've got one last question uh, in here, and and then maybe I'll close with you, Michael Griffin. But um, are you all finding any issue areas for which policymakers think corporate engagement is not appropriate? Uh, a sort of stay out of this one for us. Yeah, I mean that's I think an interesting question. It's one we actually posed uh, in a lot of our uh, conversations with policymakers, and I think what we heard most frequently was no, um, there aren't. Uh, specific issues that are off limits. Um, and in fact, a number of, of folks were quick to note, look, um, these companies, these leaders have a right to um, engage and speak out on any of these issues. Um, but what we did hear was more about how are they engaging? And, and that, that was sort of the feedback. Is it intentional? Is it, is it, is it credible? Is it authentic? Uh, and that, that's sort of um, more of where you know, we heard kind of the opportunity uh, for improvement, but, but also to the good in terms of where things were working well, uh, in terms of where they saw positive engagement. Um, you know, one, just one area is to give an example to um, flesh that out a little bit more that we highlight in the report is around you know, environmental responsibility, which is, um, you know, increasing in importance as we think about, you know, what is corporate responsibility mean? What are some of the issues? And obviously, it's going to vary by company and by industry, but in general, um, you know, we see that's an increasingly important issue. And certainly in our polling of policymakers, they tell us across the board that's increasingly important in terms of how they think about environmental responsibility is increasingly important to them in terms of the, how they think about um, the private sector and, uh, and corporate citizenship. And just uh, you know, one example uh, to come out of that when we asked, you know, who's doing a good job on this? We had lots of different answers, as you might um, expect, but you know, one sector that we heard a lot of um, you know, positive feedback on was the utility sector uh, on utilities uh, in particular. And so when we talk about intentional engagement, what we heard from some policymakers is this sector and, and it was very intentional in terms of um, reaching out very proactively and consistently to help us understand their interests, you know, in particular around how will different policy paths or options impact costs for ratepayers, for example, um, being forward-looking. So thinking about what are the investments that are required in um, you know, infrastructure, for example, um, and then jobs. People point to you know, it, uh, specific numbers of jobs, specific regions related to investments that were made um, in the renewable space. Um, so just to kind of give an example in one specific issue area that, that kind of came up organically uh, in, in our conversations. Brian, some of this, you know, reality intervenes just as an empirical matter. There are issues on which CEOs did not previously opine. And without naming names, all of a sudden now there's five CEOs who've entered into that fray. And so you can no longer say, well, CEOs don't do that. And so, you know, a lot of that ship has sailed. And I think, as, as Michael has said, a lot of the question is, how do, how do you engage but, but it's easy to open the floodgates, especially in today's environment where you have a changing model of uh, corporate leadership, much of which is, is more independent than it had been before, um, coming from certain sectors more than others. But, but uh, I, I think what we've seen in the last five years in particular is CEOs engaging on topics where now it, it becomes table stakes or expected by policymakers. Yeah, and we've seen it on our side where there, there becomes a big risk to be the, the last to say something or the one who hasn't said something. So I'm, I'm completely with you. It's, it's the how you do it, not the, necessarily the when. Um, I want to be respectful of, of everyone's time. And, and so maybe we'll wrap up here. M Michael Griffin, uh, I think a lot of folks find this, this data and these insights extremely valuable. I, I remember 
participating when I was on the Hill. I've, I've enjoyed it on the client side of things since. How can some of our viewers stay engaged in this research? How can they stay up to date on the work you all are doing at Ballast? Yeah, the best way to stay involved and updated is to sign up for our Policymaker Hub, which is on our Ballast Research website. It's really easy to sign up. Just uh, put in your email and answer a few questions. And then once you do that, you can get access uh, to our archive of research. So other reports that we've created over the years, um, not just for DC research, but also uh, our state uh, research. Uh, and then we also use that to keep folks up to date on events like this, as well as uh, upcoming research. Um, and we will be we'll be launching our quantitative research, DC advocacy research uh, in March of this year. And so we'd invite folks who are interested to uh, participate in that as well. Great. Well, guys, let's let's leave it there. We've we've covered a lot and uh, had a lot of great questions. So I, I want to thank everyone, um, especially those in the virtual audience, for for taking time out of their their busy schedules. Uh, Matt, Mike, Michael, I want to thank you guys very much for for joining us today and uh, experimenting a little bit. This was our first live video podcast, so I, I think we did a pretty good job with it. We will share some some notes with everybody, and this video will be available on HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. Um, as Michael just said, to learn more about ballast findings and stay up to date, you can visit their website, BallastResearch.com. Um, feel free to subscribe, share, listen on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And again, we'll have the video up on our, our website as well. So um, from all of us, thank you all for joining and we'll see you on the next HPS Insights. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com.